Hello, and welcome to Prepublished. I'm Sophia. Ruth Ware is the author of several standalone crime novels. Her adult debut in A Dark Dark Wood was a Richard and Judy book club choice that went on to top the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. Her books have since sold around the world, and her latest, One by One, recently went in at number three on the New York Times bestseller list, where she's a regular. Ruth has been called a modern Agatha Christie for her ingenious plotting. She's also one of the most sensible and friendly writers I know, and is the first person I turn to if I have a question about how something works in the world of publishing. I was delighted when she agreed to be on pre-published this season and talk about her influences and her writing process. It's a fascinating and revealing peek into the intricate world of crime. We recorded this episode in November 2020. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Ruth, and welcome to Prepublished. Hello, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited about this. It's lovely to talk to you in person. We, we very rarely get the chance to do this. Well, perhaps we should explain to people that we know each other outside of, um, you know, just being writers. We're pals as well. So, <laughs> Yes, Facebook pals mostly. It's, it's lovely. You are the person that I, I always ask if there's something I don't understand about the publishing world. And I don't know how you have the font of wisdom that you have. <laughs> oh, oh, that makes useful. me feel very responsible. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to say congratulations, first of all, because um, One by One has just come out in the UK and I've just finished reading it and loving it, obviously. Oh, um, thank you. How many crime novels is that now that you've done? Uh, one by One is number six, which is still amazing to me. Um, yeah, can't believe I've written six crime novels. Um, does, does yeah. it get does it get easier the launch process and and, and stress around that um, as I time don't goes by? No, really. I mean, I think there was definitely a very specific set of nerves around my first one because it was just such a change for me, and it I I had you know like nightmares and sort of panic attacks beforehand that everyone was going to hate it, um, and that has certainly lessened a bit. Um, but I think it just, you know, it becomes hard in different ways. You've set yourself certain bars that you feel like you have to keep clearing. And, you know, the writing process, in some ways it gets easier because you know what works. But in other ways, you know, I've become very conscious of not repeating myself because I don't write... Um, I don't I don't have a series character so I don't have those kind of things to fall back on um so it is about reinventing the wheel every single time and you know the thing about a wheel is that there's only so many ways you can change it it's never going to be square so <laughs> yeah that's what I really want to talk to you about I'm I'm really fascinated by that um but this this one came out in the US first didn't it it uh, did yeah back in September because um, you are huge in the US, aren't you? I mean, you're not exactly small in the UK. Um, do, do they usually do that now? Do they they usually launch your books there first? Um, no, it was just the way the cookie crumbled this time. Normally, my books come out in the summer. Um, I'm seen as kind of a, a beach read person, I guess. Yeah. Um, but this year, it was a combination of factors. I delivered a bit late because um, I had a really busy year last year with loads of travel and, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to deliver on my normal date. So I'd already told my publishers that. And then I think the fact as well that this is a book about kind of winter and snow and skiing, I think both publishers just felt felt that it made sense to go for an autumn launch. Um, yeah. But then it just became about who had the slots where. So yeah, America wanted to go in September and the UK couldn't. So 
yeah, that's just how it worked out this time. You see, this is the stuff you know about slots. I didn't understand about slots at all for years. Um, right. So I'd, it's it's really writing process that I want to talk to you um, about the most and craft. And is this going to be really hard for me? Because I wish we had a day. <laughs> because now we both write crime. And I think we both read very similar books growing up that have influenced what we want I to do. I think you do. can see the, the similar influence. I mean, our, our books are very different. But I think definitely when I was reading The Windsor Knot, I could see a lot of you making a lot of nods to the same books that I had read and loved as, as a, a teen. And sort of, yeah, when my, when my crime sort of... It, was imprinting itself on me as as what a you know what a crime novel should look like. Yes. So I want to talk about influences, but first I want to go back to what you were saying about not having a serious detective. Um this is the thing um I was speaking to to Caroline Green yesterday for this podcast and and she was asking me whether I um how stressed I felt about the fact that I I, I have other books that I need to write for the for the deal mm. and I was saying no I, I can't wait because the world is already built and I love it and I can't wait to sort of leap back in but as you were just saying you don't have that I mean do you ever kick yourself that, that you don't have one person like a rebus or somebody like that who whose head you can just easily kind of slip back inside for each book but you really you do have to reinvent how you do it each time um I mean I think there's pros and cons definitely the fear of the blank page every time I sit down to write a new book I do think damn it why don't I have a you know a series character um but the trouble is and the reason why I never have had a series character is because I'm not super interested in procedural novels. You know, I, I I love them when they're written well, um, but I don't have that background. I'd have to do a huge amount of research to, to write it convincingly. Um, and I don't think that kind of thing is my forte. You know, I'm, I'm more interested in the sort of psychological thriller end of the genre. Yes. Um, and the difficulty is when you're dealing with ordinary people in extraordinary situations there's a limit to the number of extraordinary situations an ordinary person can plausibly get themselves into you know you end up with that kind of Cabot Cove effect of Jessica Fletcher opening her front door and stumbling over a corpse every five minutes midsummer murders with the bodies piling up yeah exactly and you know midsummer murders and murder she wrote do that brilliantly and I love them but I don't write in that genre and I don't think I could persuade myself that uh, you know a regular ordinary person would keep encountering life or death situations you know once I think it's plausible it happens to many people um twice is maybe stretching it a bit but I could probably come up with a reason why the situation would recur or something from that episode would come back to haunt them but for it to keep happening again and again book after book I I think it would just stretch my imagination too much so the challenge has really been finding someone who is not a police officer and not um you know a forensic examiner or something who could plausibly keep being in these situations and I think I felt very jealous when you told me the pitch for the Windsor Knot because I was like 
oh, you know, she's come up with the one person. Because, you know, the problem is that the age of the gentleman detective is past. You know, the, the time yeah. when Lord Peter Whimsey could rock up to a crime scene and say, gosh, my good man, you know, mind if I have a poke at the Balliol corpse has yes. kind of gone. And actually, probably the Queen is the one person who, you know, well, she's not going to go poking at corpses, but she does, you know, she's, she's going to get got, someone to do it for yes, her. <laughs> someone would tell her what was going on. Um, and for the rest of the population, that is no longer the case which poses some fairly insuperable barriers to investigating a crime. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Lord Peter Whimsey. I know we're both massive Dorothy Sayers fans and, and I know a lot of people have said that, that my book is, you know, Miss Marple meets the crown, but it is kind of Lord Peter Whimsey in a dress. You're quite right. But I think there's something much, much deeper to the kind of books that you write, which is so zeitgeist, which isn't just that you can't have the same person doing it but but also you have so many twists in the tale and you you use so much unreliable narration that yeah. that often it is something that that can only be experienced one time and yes. um yeah that that person for reasons that become clear at the very end of the book just just wouldn't work in another book um, yeah once you know everything about them that reveal cannot ever be made twice and lots of my books only really work because of the particular constraints that I put on the book so there's um my previous one that uh, came out last year the turn of the key is written in the form of a letter which becomes crucial to the plot and that book wouldn't necessarily have worked if it were written in a different format but clearly I'm not going to create a detective who writes you know 90,000 word letters every time there's a new book so that I guess that's the joy of writing standalones is that you do get to you know to come up with something new every time and if a particular format or a particular kind of twist is what that book demands you can do it but what you give up is yes having those sorts of building blocks there at the beginning of each novel yes I'm glad you call it a joy because I would find it so stressful but I, I'm interested in in the way that you're playing with the detective genre so you've done well I, I noticed you pointed this out in, in another interview you've done ordinary people as you say stumbling into situations and you did that with the first three books yeah um so in a dark dark wood which golly I fell in love with that book so much um, and and then The Woman in Cabin 10, and then was Mrs. Westaway the third one? Uh, the Lion one? Game was the third the Lion one, Game which the third is, one. yeah, people, yeah. that's sort of half and half, oh, that, so yeah. it's sort of people who've done sort of bad stuff at boarding school, and then years later it comes back to haunt them. And then, and then yeah, then was the death of Mrs. Westaway, which was and, very and different. And in that, yes, you, then you were sort of slightly pushing it, when this, this is somebody who brought the situation on themselves rather than stumbling into it. Absolutely. So you were, you were kind of pushing it there. And you've done Starting at the End, um, which in a way, in a dark, dark wood, is is that, and then kind of unspooling backwards from how did this person get here and... Um, Interestingly, they, you know, their um, their memory is not great, so that that really helps. You've done you've done locked room. You've done um, being isolated with a killer, like, and then there were none, which I know is a is a Christie book that you you love. Yeah. Um, 
So how many more more of these um a trope is is too too sort of glib a word to use for it but but these these sort of classics of the genre how many more are left for you to play with do you think I don't know well that is the trouble isn't it and once you've plumbed a certain number of them you do have to um yeah I mean this is this is this is what I meant really about sort of having to reinvent the wheel each time it's not yeah. simply um coming up with a new character and a new setting and a new narrative voice it's also finding a fresh way to tell the story and you know the the problem is there are only so many ways you can tell a story you know classically they say there's only seven plots which yeah I don't know whether I would agree with that but certainly you know a novel is usually a particular shape and a crime novel is usually an even more particular shape and having that kind of framework there is really reassuring I think it's one reason why crime novelists tend to be able to write a bit quicker than writers in sort of other genres because we have more sort of building blocks um but it does mean that you're operating within already quite sort of um i'm not going to say constrained sort of circumstances but there's there's definitely sort of uh, er, you know there's a kind of framework there that you have to stick to because readers expect it and yeah, being creative within that does get harder and harder with each book. So this is my uh, this is my problem at the moment is when I sit down to write my next book, I'm going to have to find a way to 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 reinvent the wheel again without making it triangular. Uh, yeah, um, I, I'm really curious about that. Um, so a book a year, I assume that's what the publishers want from you. Um, and so when when one book is coming out, how far through the next one are you usually? Well, normally I, um, so up until now, my pattern has been kind of to complete a book um, in the summer, hand it into my editors, edit it over the autumn while I'm Mm -hmm. kind of thinking up new plots, new characters, and then to sit down and start writing the new book in sort of January, um, which means normally I'm well underway with the new book by the time the previous one is published. Um, but each year that's been getting pushed back a little bit because it worked at first but one of the lovely things about having lots of international publishers is you get invited to go abroad a lot and I'm not the type of author who I can't write in cafes and on planes and stuff I'm very jealous of people who can I'm so glad you say that I can't really either yeah no I, I hate that thing of people looking over your shoulder and yeah I can't I can't do it I have to be at home at my desk ideally yeah. with nobody else in the house um so every time I you know I go away and do a literary festival or something like that it, it's time I'm not writing um and so the deadlines kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter mm. and so sort of this time last year I said to my agent I think I need a, a not a break exactly but I need to take longer over the next book so that I'm not you know putting borrowing from Peter to pay Paul each time kind of thing and so we built you know that she said that's that's fine you know we'll figure it out and then of course 
the pandemic happened and this year just kind of completely (laughs) disappeared into a nightmare of homeschooling and queuing up for waitrose and you know all the other stuff that we've been doing including doom scrolling on twitter uh so it turned out to be a really great year to uh to not have a deadline but at the same time the fact that i didn't have a deadline meant that i did even less than i would otherwise have done so yeah, so this is a long way of saying there will not be a new Ruth Ware book in 2021 um, for I the think first that's time. Fair enough, right? <laughs> <You're> <laughs> but I have a good excuse. There was a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I and I should say I, I might say this in the in the introduction too. But um, we're we're both sitting at home with with various building works going on around us. So if, if there's lots of drilling and hammering in the background, um, as there certainly is for me now then yeah that's what it is when at the beginning of lockdown like the second week of lockdown um they started building a house behind my my writing shed i mean it's literally a foot away Ugh. um a two-story house so yeah they're, they're just putting the, the bits and pieces inside that now bless their hearts <laughs> so kind the of end is in sight <laughs> oh god um but how much of that process Normally, I mean, if you take the sort of the, the first six, how, how how long do you need to to reinvent your wheel? And then how how long do you need to actually write? And how many drafts do you go through to get it the way you want it? Um, well, typically it takes me about six, six to eight months to write a book, I would say, depending on how tricky it is and you know how how easy the process comes um and I never know what to say when people ask about drafts because I don't really do drafts I edit as I go along which is not something I would necessarily encourage people to do in this well I mean I started when I started writing I started by simply not editing because I wrote for myself for years without ever trying to get published and it was a great apprenticeship because you know it teaches you how to get a first draft down quickly because you simply write what you want to write um and then you don't worry about you know the quality or the kind of you know the narrative arc or anything you just say right that's done put it under the bed Um, well you do that Ruth I'm not sure the rest of us do I think even even in pre-published days I I was constantly um second guessing myself and judging myself and not finishing things because I didn't think they were working so I really admire the fact that you could actually write it through to the end I'm quite monogamous once I've set on an idea I tend to see it through to the end um yeah whether or not I particularly intend to do anything with it um but now I write pretty much in the same way I write chronologically I start at the beginning um if a book has back and forth timelines I write it the way you read it I don't do one timeline and then splice in another and that's not to say that I don't go back and make changes you know um in a uh the woman in cabin 10 for instance originally had a second narrator um who was Lowe's boyfriend Judah and his section just wasn't working and he came out very late on um in edits um so that was a big change and then the book I've just finished um and which is one by one um that originally had only one narrator and I got about 30,000 words in and I could tell the book wasn't working and I sent it to my my agent which is very unusual for me because normally I just finish a book without showing it to anybody and then kind of say well at the point when I'm happy with it I say here's you know here it is I hope you like it but I knew something wasn't working and I sent it to her and said "Ah, I'm not sure about this I don't know if it's quite working and of course 
I was hoping she would go, oh, darling, don't be silly. It's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> carry on. But because she's a, she's a good agent, she said, no, I think you're right. I think it's not working. Um, and I had to figure out why. And after some back and forth with my agent, I realised that I'd basically picked the wrong point of view to tell the story because Erin, who was my original narrator, was an outsider yes. and yeah. she didn't know anything about the company who's at the heart of the story. She didn't know any backstory. Um, and it you needed that perspective because the, the company at the heart of One by One is so dysfunctional and so kind of wrapped up in its own mythology that you need someone outside of it to take a clear look at these people and say, oh my God, who are you kind of thing. But yeah. you also needed someone inside the company who understood what was going on, who was in all of the meetings, who could relay stuff without having to overhear it or figure it out. And so I had to go back and rewrite the beginning to include a second narrator who became Liz. Yes. Um, so that, but whether that's one draft or two drafts, or I don't know. You know, I, I got to a point where yeah. I was like, this needs something else. I went back, I added it in, and then I carried on going forwards, which is very typical for me. You know, I'll, I'll get to a point where I'm like, oh, I think we should have had a clue to such and such by now. I should go back and seed that, or I have yeah. a good idea about someone's motivation, and then I have to go back and change a scene to reflect that. But I don't do any of that in sort of in drafts I just tinker as I go along and then when I get to the end hopefully it's fine and sometimes it's a bit of work and and take it from there I do find this a bit sickening can I just say it's a bit oh, like Lee Child you're just oh this comes so easily to you so you you, you are kind of writing as a, as a reader the way he does then I mean presumably yes. you know who did it and you and you've decided on on which of these um these sort of uh, iconic genre choices you're you're making um so you've got I mean, that in your so, head when you start have you yeah I I think when I say I don't plot it, it that actually makes it sound like I'm sort of just making it up on the fly and that really isn't true I yeah. plot more than I probably it probably sounds like um because I do spend a long time thinking about my characters before I start writing I know a lot about them I know a lot of their backstory I know what makes them tick I know a lot about the setting usually because that's generally very important in my books. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And I always know who did it and why. Mm. And so often things about the motive or the characters I figure out as I go along. But generally the kind of the method, because my books almost always feature a murder, the method of the murder, how it's done and why is usually in my head from the beginning and I'm writing towards that end. I think it's yes. a really good idea to have a sort of concrete ending in mind where something is going to happen and that you're kind of working your way towards that climactic scene. So that is always in my head, but I don't write, I don't plot in the sense of I don't write anything down. I don't figure out when the twists are going to come. I mm. don't, you know, I don't necessarily know all of the twists. Sometimes that, happens spontaneously I um, do find that too yes and, and it's lovely when they do yes yeah <laughs> it's amazing oh when you're like oh that's a nice bit of misdirection <laughs> yeah yeah and I don't know about you but I often find that my subconscious puts stuff in that then becomes very important it's really yeah. surprising how often you know there's a scene in chapter one with a red scarf and then suddenly in chapter 10 you realize that that's because a red scarf is critical to you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> 
That does sound like a very Lee Child thing. Um, yes, I, I, I'm interested in this because there's there's a book by um, a writer and a professor at Cambridge called Andy Martin um, called Reacher Said Nothing, where he sat with Lee Child for a year and watched him write his 20th novel. And I was just, you know, being a geek about all this kind of stuff, I was really fascinated. And yes, th this whole not plotting beforehand thing just blew my mind. Um, but I and, and also that Val McDermott I, I read, you know, did to start with and then latterly has done it much less. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you, perhaps, well, well, we'll come to influences, but I, it must be that you, you just have structure and, and the, the toolkit in your mind when you start so that you can just apply it as you go along, I guess. I think so. I mean, I never really studied um, writing. Yeah. But... When I started hanging out with writers and, you know, heard people talking about the three acts of, you know, and the kind of the inciting incident and the climax points and stuff, I realised that all of those things map really clearly onto my books. And all those, you know, when I thought I was being frightfully original by having a kind of, you know, a darkest moment at sort of, you know, 75%, yes. actually that's like <laughs> it's a, a completely <laughs> like standard industry trope that, you know, is in, yeah. which is obviously why it felt satisfying to me to put it there because, I had come to expect that there would be a moment where everything goes wrong right before the moment where everything comes good kind of thing. But it's only when someone points it out that you're like, oh, okay, that's what, that's I, was what I was doing. <laughs> and in some ways it makes you feel very clever that, you know, your books flawlessly adhere to these charts without you even knowing about them. But in other ways it makes you realise how very predictable <laughs> you are. Well, these things work. I mean, I, I was the same. I deliberately, I did do a screenwriting course, but I didn't want to do the kind of thing that I have since taught when I was starting out because I wanted to make my own mistakes and mm. learn for myself. And by God, I made every mistake I possibly could. Um, but I did learn for myself. But I guess what we both did was was read. So yeah. we, we just had lots and lots of models of how this is done in our heads without even really thinking about it when Absolutely. we were growing up. And I think, you know, there's very little writing advice that I would say is completely universal I'm always seeing things on Twitter where they're like all true writers do this and I never tick more than about two out of ten of them uh -huh. but I think the one thing that I just I, I just don't believe you could write a good novel without it is you have to read not necessarily while you're writing but you have to have read a lot at some point in your life in order to know what a book feels like and looks like and how to structure it. Because, you know, you can't invent these things from nowhere. We're all standing on the shoulders of every other writer and every other crime writer. And, and yeah, why deny yourself that kind of input? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you need to have been doing it in childhood. You know, if, if someone is coming to writing in adulthood and, and thinking, oh, my God, I, I wasn't a reader growing up, I can't. I, I don't think that's true. You you can start whenever you like, but you just you oh, need to have started completely. before you write. And I, I know lots of writers who never wrote until they were, you know, in their 30s or 40s and weren't necessarily huge readers until that point either. But yes, at some point, I think you do have to put in the legwork and research the genre that you're trying to write. There's not yeah. really much way around that. So talking of which, influences. Uh, we've talked about Dorothy Sayers. Um, you introduced me to Brat Farrer by Josephine Tay. And actually, I read it because I needed to know about horses because of writing about the Queen. And I still really love it for that alone, the way that it talks about horses and it just makes them 
sound like really entertaining humans mm. but it is one of my favorite stories now and and again twists and going on off in unexpected directions i think it's it's absolutely i think brilliant. it's one of her best books she's much better known for the franchise affair um which and... I, th- I think is quite bad actually <laughs> Looking yeah, back, quite just, dated rather i just don't like the characters as much and no. the daughter of time because i think it was so original um yeah you know, that's regularly at kind of number two on the best kind of crime novels of all time list. Yeah, um, I didn't know this and I was busy recommending it to people as if they'd never heard of it before. <laughs> until lots I of people oh, haven't, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> but, you know, I think if you're I think if you're a crime fiction geek, you usually have heard of it. But um but Brat Farrah, I just love the characters, I love the family, and Tay has lots of weird quirks. She's very into physiognomy, which is so unfashionable these days you know the idea that you can look at someone and if they've got dark blue eyes it's because they're a nymphomaniac kind of thing and (laughs) that is not very evident in Brat Farrah which is but I think possibly partly why I enjoy that book she doesn't go down that route which is fine (laughs) yes I mean she she does do something which I which does I think connect with the way you write in a way which is it's a book about an imposter going to a family um I suppose a little bit about sort of death of Mrs. Westray in it, but um, in order to um, defraud them. And yes. yet it turns into something entirely different by the end. Which yes. I well, yeah, it was it. it was a very direct inspiration for the death of Mrs. Westaway. I wasn't trying to rewrite it because obviously Hal's journey becomes completely different. But it was it sounds like a very strange combination. But that book is sort of a, a mashup of Rebecca and Brat Farrah together. Yeah. I can really see that. Okay, so Daphne du Maurier, um, another writer that we both love. Uh, but Rebecca isn't your favourite du Maurier novel, is it? No, my cousin Rachel is. I mean, I love Rebecca. I think it's one of the best novels out there. Um, but I think what she does in My Cousin Rachel is even more clever. And her kind of her concerns and preoccupations as a writer are more evident I think and more cleverly handled in My Cousin Rachel um, you know Dumori is always talking about gender roles, gender expectations misogyny, mm. the way women are pigeonholed and that's something that comes up a lot in Rebecca but in My Cousin Rachel it's really what the whole book is about it's, you know, it's about whether Rachel is able to exist in the world which hates her and Philip, who's the narrator, is the kind of, um, he's the visible kind of uh, expression of that hatred because he's been brought up to detest women. He's been brought up by a misogynist to be a misogynist. And then he falls in love. And it's yeah. that kind of pendulum swing between the two extremes of he can only view this woman as either a black widow, you know, poisoner or as an angel. And yeah, it's so brilliantly done. I love it. I read it again and again. <laughs> so and and the reader kind of tips tiptoes through it, not quite sure what to think and who to believe. And and I'm interested that you also love Patricia Highsmith and Susan Hill. 
And and I sense that there's a theme of sort of unreliable narration and, and anti-heroes that you quite enjoy in your reading and that seeps into your writing as well. Is that true? I do. do. Yeah, I generally, I'm very interested in unlikable characters. Mm. Um, I think it's another reason why I really liked Gone Girl because they're just both so hideous. Oh, I know. And Me too. I, you know, I often get reviews saying oh, you know, I would have liked this book more, but I found the characters very unlikable. And it doesn't really upset me, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, because I don't really care if my characters are likable or not. I want them to be interesting. I want them to be realistic. I would like the books to be compelling. Um, although, obviously, you know, you can't please everyone all of the time. But I don't want to write about people who you would necessarily want as your best friend or your, you know... I, I just don't care about that. I think as long as my, as long as a character is interesting and believable, I will follow them anywhere as a reader, and that's what I hope to give readers in my own books. So yes, I definitely gravitate to to those types of books. Ah, you must be very pleased with some of the one by one reviews I've been looking at then, because that that's exactly what they say that your characters are just so authentic, and that's what they <laughs> love about them. So job done. <laughs> Um, but you didn't start out writing crime, did you? I mean, like me, you were a YA writer to start with. So, um, yeah, I mean, having followed in your footsteps, I'm, I'm keen to know why you decided to make the switch. Well, I think saying decided to make the switch probably makes it sound more deliberate than it actually was. Um, one of the reasons why I started writing YA was because at the time, well, not one of the reasons I started writing it, but one of the reasons why I why I was first published in YA was because I had always wanted to write and be published. Um, but after university, I went to work in the publishing industry as a press officer, which gave me all sorts of brilliant, you know, really good grounding in, you know, what to do, what not to do, how the publishing industry works. But it also gave me this really crippling attack of stage fright partly because I was working with all of these amazing writers, but also because I just couldn't bear the idea of submitting a book to people that I might work with one day, even if they didn't know me now. You know, there oh, might wow, okay. come a point where I had to sit next to them at dinner or where I was working with one of their authors. And I just, I hated the idea that they would have rejected something and then it would be awkward, which was, you know, so up my own arse. You know, <laughs> I'm sure none of them would have even remembered it, but it, it, it it was a concern for me at the time. Um, and then when I was on maternity leave with my second baby, I was sort of hanging around the library in the children's section with my first little boy. And I began to look at a genre of books that I hadn't thought about for years, but had loved, which was the YA section, because they were sort of, you know, they were the only things that didn't come with kind of animals in. And, you know, my, I was immersed in that kind of small kid life. And it was nice to read a book from cover to cover that was an actual novel. So I used to sit there reading the YA section while they sort of potted around. And I had an idea for a YA novel. And I suddenly realised, actually, YA publishing is part of the children's um, section, at least it is in the UK, it's slightly different in other countries. And they have completely different editors completely different agents completely different you know ecosystem mm -hmm. and I thought I could I could submit this to people I've never worked with and would have no danger of ever working with and I could just do it you know not anonymously because I put my name on it but they would know they would have no idea who I was I, I you know so I just 
I wrote a YA novel, went the slush pile route, sent it to a bunch of agents I had never worked with and didn't say who I was for the most part. Um, and it got picked up somewhat to my surprise. So I think in a way it felt like a very sort of safe way um, to fail because yeah. I could just be a, a ordinary member of the public. Um, and then having written five YA books, I had an idea for a book that was just so clearly not YA um, and I was having coffee with a friend and we were talking about thrillers and we both love thrillers and I've read you know been reading them for years and she said she'd never read a thriller set on a, a hen night and as soon as she said it I just thought I really want to read this book but more importantly yeah. I really want to write this book and I think as a writer you know when you've got a good idea because you start to get scared of other people writing it. And yes, I thought absolutely. I would be so annoyed <laughs> if someone else got to this idea before I did. And yes, I always was like to her kind of, don't mention that idea to anybody <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I and I knew, I knew I wanted to write this book and I knew that I would be so angry if someone else wrote it because I thought I could do it really well. Um, so, but there was clearly no way it could be a YA book. You know, a hen night is just such a not a YA thing. There's no way a, a kid of sort of 15, 16 would ever be getting married, let alone having a, a hen night. So I went back to my agent and I said, you know, don't hate me, but I think <laughs> I want to write an adult crime book. And, you know, logically what she should have said was you've spent five books building up a readership, you know, you've worked really hard on this, you've got a brand that's working, don't rock the boat. But she didn't, you know, she said, if that's what you want to do, you know, have a go and we'll figure it out. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be a really good decision. So It did, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Richard and Judy Club and all of that later. Yeah. Um, and did you write that that one quite quickly once you sat down to do it? Yes, that was probably my quickest, um, quickest out of all of my adult books. I think just because it was completely fresh ground. I'd never tried to write a thriller before. It was very different to my YA novels. I was really excited about the idea. So yes, I wrote it very fast. Um, and But the editing process for that was more complicated because I edited it with my UK editor and then it went out on submission to um, overseas publishers, mm. got picked up by my now American publisher, who are amazing, um, and was then re-edited by my American editor. Ooh, so that okay. was quite a kind of, I must admit when they, you know, when the letter came in and they said, well, they do, you know, they do want to be involved in the editorial process. I kind of did a little like, oh my gosh. But, you know, it was so worth it. And actually my American editor is incredible. She now edits side by side with my UK publishers. So they do everything in tandem. Yes, I have that too. It's great. Yeah. And it's, it's you know... It, the old cliche that two heads are better than one is so so true um you don't want to write by committee because there comes a point where you know you're getting input from bob in sales and jane in marketing and you know you're starting to think well hang on a minute whose yeah. book is this kind of yeah. thing but having two different perspectives on a manuscript is so valuable and often as a writer it enables you to pick and choose which approach <laughs> you prefer you know if there's someone saying one thing and another person saying but i love this scene it enables you to say well you know obviously i would cut it but so and so really <laughs> likes that scene so <laughs> yeah useful 
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested. You know, you've been talking about um, having having the kids at home while you're writing, and uh, and the waitress queue and all that kind of thing. Um, how old are your kids now? Uh, they are um, almost twelve and fourteen, so they're okay. past the kind of you know really sort of little primary school stage. Yeah, but. Definitely lockdown. Homeschooling revealed to me very clearly why I was not and should not have been a teacher. You know, I think like most writers, I write best with as few distractions as possible. And family is definitely a very big distraction. So. Indeed. So so what do you do um, in a non sort of lockdown environment? Do you do you just sort of write during the school day, that kind of thing when the house is Yeah, clear? so my normal routine is get the kids off to school, you know, breakfast all that kind of stuff um obviously used to do the school run not so much anymore um yeah and then sit down to write and I try to treat it like an office day really so I write from sort of nine until three-ish um Mm -hmm. with the break for lunch sometimes not if things are going really well and I'll look up and suddenly realize it's like quarter to three Um, yeah Often I'm there at 11 o'clock having a sandwich because things are not going so well. Um, And yes, you know, that tend, I try to fit everything into that. So that includes social media and doing my taxes and my VAT return and, you know, all of the very boring admin, which goes along with being a a small business, which is what we are, I guess. Um, And then, yes, you know, once everybody's home, I try to kind of shut the door on all of that. Um, which I think is, you know, the expectation now. It's actually partly what One by One is about. So much of our work life is bleeding over into our home lives and we're expected to be kind of on 24-7 and, you know, tweeting for our employers and all this, you know, socialising on our own time for work and all this. And I think actually it's not great for us as a society. It's better when there's a really clear divide and you can kind of leave all the office problems in the office and obviously you know I work from home so my office is just our spare bedroom but as far as possible I try to kind of shut the computer and say right that's it but you know having said that I wrote for years alongside a day job um writing in the evenings or on days off or at the weekends um and that's the reality for an awful lot of writers so I'm very very aware that I'm incredibly lucky to have that luxury now of being able to say right I'm going to have my evenings to myself um because for years I didn't and I completely you know there's lots of writers who if they can't write in the evenings they just wouldn't be able to write because you know publishing is unfortunately a, quite a difficult industry to sustain a career in. And oh goodness, so, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, for for most people, you have to do it alongside something that actually pays a living wage, don't you? So, um, yeah, it it is it is really tough to find the time. Um, and and I I say to to the students that I have as well. You know, so often you know they don't have a spare bedroom, um, and like us, somewhere where they can go. Um, if you can just carve out a a bit of space even if even if you just make it with having a mood board that you get out from under the bed or something and you and you put up in front of you while you're writing on a, a candle that you light or a favorite mug that you use that can be enough just to just to have your little space 
absolutely while you're doing yeah, it kind of ring fence that sort of moment to get you yeah to, yeah no, and sometimes that's all you've agree. got and i know um somebody who, who wrote a couple of novels on on her blackberry as she had at the time on her commute on the way to work because that that's all she had was was just sort of in those days you know 45 minutes on the tube oh wow um, you end in. up with rsi in your phone know. wouldn't you <laughs> don't know how she did it but they were really quite successful as well. i know a few so, writers who write on their commute um Oh, Phil Earle, yeah, who, uh, the children's writer, he wrote um, most of his books on, I think it was the number 38 bus, and I remember reading this blog post (gasps) from him about how he had to get a particular seat, because it was the only one where he had, it had to be like a top deck one with the little shelf in front of you, because it meant he could put his laptop down and actually type <laughs> oh yeah i can you do you need those rituals apart from the sheer practicality of it and philel's books are just completely wonderful so yeah it works for him absolutely philel can do it um and so um do you do you have a kind of word count that you try and write to in in this sort of condensed period of time that you've got do you, do you have a, a good work count day or a bad work count day i don't i try not to focus on word counts because I think it um it makes you focus on the wrong things you know Uh, so I know lots of writers do they say you know they quit once they've done a thousand words or whatever but I tend to just think have I made the book better and sometimes that can be deleting 500 words or sometimes it can be writing 500 words or sometimes it can be writing 5,000 words. You know, a, yeah, okay. a great writing day can be several thousand words for me. Um, but I just have an idea of where my deadlines are, how behind I am, mm-hmm. how under pressure I feel and write accordingly. And generally speaking, and this has been me all my life, it's not just in writing, I'd say exactly how I used to do my homework when I was, you know, at school. I will procrastinate until I can no longer procrastinate, but I will always get things in on time. (laughs) So there's an awful lot more sort of faffing and social media at the beginning of a novel than there is at the end when I'm sort of like, I have to deliver this in six weeks and I've got, you know, 20,000 words still to write kind of thing. <laughs> I'm always quite interested when when writers that I follow on Twitter who are very social suddenly go quiet for weeks at a time and I'm thinking, you're on a deadline, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> what am I going to see next year as a result of this sudden silence? <laughs> no, absolutely. Or when they suddenly deactivate from Facebook and you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good stuff is going on but I but I know what you mean about sort of being kind to yourself there there have been a few occasions where I've been doing the laundry or something and I've just solved a major plot point and and I will try and do a decent day's writing after that but a part of my brain thinks that was actually a good day already yeah (laughs) even if it was only five seconds of inspiration but it will make a big difference to the book no Um, exactly exactly sometimes you know it's a better day's writing to go out for a walk clear your head and have a you know have a ping moment where you solve a problem than to actually get any words down at all yeah although I do think there are other times when you just have to write through um this sort of the, the writer's block thing I think can be solved by just if, if the walks aren't working and all of that kind of thing um then yeah just writing through the problem can be an alternative solution well I've yeah, come to realize there's several types of writer's block oh, yeah. um and I think one of them is true writer's block like it's and that's actually a form of depression in my view and I know a few yes. writers who've had it and it can go on for years and it's a genuine 
inability to write just and I think I almost had a full I had a taste of that in lockdown it wasn't like as extreme as some people but I just had no desire to write I had no imagination my brain just wasn't in that space Mm. um and then there's writer's block that you get when you can't think what happens next and that often is solved by just waiting a little bit or going out for a walk or just you know you just need the, the creative well to refill a little bit to sort of give you enough kind of to to power on and then there's another type which is where you know what happens next but you don't want to write it or you're not quite sure how to tackle it and that I think is exactly the type that can only be solved by just putting your bum in the chair and saying to yourself I will not get up until I've written this scene because you just have to write it and there's no way around that however difficult or daunting or unpleasant the scene is you just have to do it and yeah that is a very bum in chair kind of (laughs) I love that I I normally try to end by asking people for their their writing tips but I think that analysis of the different kind of writer's blocks is perfect. So, yes, um, let's let's end on that because, yeah, that, that's hugely helpful. Um, and, oh, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really, really lovely. Oh, thank you for having me, Sophia. It's been such a lovely chat. And, um, yeah, I feel like it wasn't, wasn't work at all. It was just a nice chat with a friend. <laughs> I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.